0: It's my great pleasure to welcome you at the uh, Inside Insurance uh, Club. Uh, we run, um, you know, monthly podcasts and so on, and we have a series on insure tech and uh, investors in that kind of space. I crossed your path about 20 years ago when you started at Audible, which was uh, sold to uh, Amazon. It was incredible already at that time, but since then, instead of having one uh, unicorn, you have I don't know, six or ten of them. Uh, some people call you. Uh, the uh, one man on in and Forbes, TechCrunch uh, you know value your track record at 100 uh, percent IRR. so we're all here to understand you know you know how how you do it, uh, why you are alone you have no secretary, no office, no analyst, nobody, only you and 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 so on. so I think, uh let's do it in three parts so if we the first part maybe if you could tell us more about your background in INSEAD because you are the INSEAD grad and then maybe uh tell us you know some of the secrets behind uh, the ZIV method as the press name it and maybe uh we can zoom into some fewer example you know because it's um, just amazing for me thank you man appreciate it
1: so in terms of my background um I started as an electrical engineer. I was a research staff member at IBM in Israel. I went to Insight in 1993 and graduated um, 94J, came back to Israel, and the whole venture capital just started in Israel, and I was lucky to have been recruited by Apex to start their operation in the U.S. as one of two people. I was the junior one. Seven and a half years later, I always wanted to do it. If I'm going to do it, I always wanted. I was always intrigued by the Silicon Valley. So in 2002, I had the opportunity within Apex to move to the Silicon Valley, which I did. And my very first deal in the U.S. was Audible when I met uh, Min, who was on the Bertelsmann side, Random House. And in fact, uh, I had a few good investments in Israel, but not a home run. So Audible was my very first home run, which is interesting because people think these things are overnight successes. But when I look back, it took me eight years more, eight or nine years as a venture capitalist before I really invested my, my the investment that led to my first home run. So, you know, it takes, these things take time. Um, anyway, five years later, I uh, basically left Apex And from 2008, I've been doing what I do today, which is a one man venture capitalist with one twist. The first eight years I was doing it with my own money, but I was behaving as a venture capitalist, not as an angel. I was writing seven figure checks and uh, leading uh, leading rounds of up up to five million and taking both seats and being the main backers of early stage company, er, main backer of early stage companies. Since 2015, I also started to raise money from the outside, and somehow these this really scaled. Uh today I believe I'm the largest solo GP in the world. Uh just the last 10 months I raised over a billion and I invested over, I think, 600 million just in the last 12 months. So it, it, uh, so when I have a host as has been said, maybe 10-15 companies already in the multi-billion dollar stage, and you know, each of them. You know, I typically have 20, 30, even 40% stake. So that's also very unusual for any VC, let alone solo GP, but even other VC firms. Typically, the by the time the company gets to a multi billion dollar valuation, the early stage people typically are with single digit ownership, maybe low double digit. In my case, most of them, I still have 20, 30, 40%. So uh, because I'm able to continue to play in subsequent rounds as well. So basically, that's the, uh, the short. Uh, Short uh, background, uh, and I should say that really, I really credit Insead, really for enabling all that. Because before that, I was on the path of an engineer. I didn't have. I really, I, I think the window of opportunity was open to me thanks to my uh, uh, to my uh, studies at Insead. So definitely, I owe uh, I owe something.
0: Some people, they, they you know, if you are uh, if you want to raise a hundred million today as a first time fund. You need to be a team of I don't know three people, right? Yeah. You raise one billion by being on your own. So how 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 do you do it? I mean, uh...
1: well, to be honest, I'm am a terrible fundraiser, you know. So the secret is not fundraising, you know, some secret about funds. I'm the worst fundraiser in the world. I tell them why they shouldn't invest in me. And it's the same. By the way, it's the same LP. So it's not like I found some special LPs. In this case, it's it's really the performance. There's no way around it. It's it's just the performance is so unusual that uh, they're doing something that they've never done before, which is giving writing 30, 40, $50 million checks to a single person. Um, you know, the, it's just the performance, that's all.
0: Okay, so performance. So before we're going to yeah. go uh, towards performance, but, but before, just for the audience and for people that will listen to us afterwards, uh, people describe you as a single GP. You, 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 and Forbes wrote as you are the uh, one-person uh, investment empire, whatever the name yeah. is. Empire. Yeah. yeah. So, so, just, just to, because, just to be clear, you have no secretary, no office, no analyst, uh, nothing. You meet people in Starbucks. I saw you picture. No, not
1: Starbucks. A better, better coffee, Italian coffee shop. Uh, <laughs> so you meet people Starbucks in Starbucks is for in- Americans. Anyone European or Israeli. Well, appreciates quality doesn't go to Starbucks. So, yeah, um, so this is
0: true, right? I mean, there's no, uh, it's not a myth that uh, you do uh, those investments uh, without any office and so on. Why, you know, in, in, uh, in most, for most VCs, you know, this is uh, not possible, right? It's uh, obviously not possible. Yeah,
1: you know, I, I, uh, first of all, this is it, okay? You're right. I have no analysts, no associates, nothing, no investment committee, no, no nothing, no office. Yeah, this is it. This is my home, but this is really my office. So meetings I don't have at home because my family doesn't like it. So I have coffee shops or Zoom at home. That's it. Uh, You know, I just I've done the traditional VC thing for 12 years at Apex. Uh, I just didn't think that it was it was necessary to have all this thing around to make great investments, you know, Um, just because everyone was doing it didn't. To me, didn't mean that uh, one is a necessary con- It's a necessary uh, condition, and I don't think entrepreneurs, the good entrepreneurs, I don't think they care about these things. You know, um, uh, they don't, you know they don't care about nice offices or not. They they want someone who they feel comfortable with and would 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 be it would be fun with and it, they would you know hopefully support them and you know and and optimize their chances of success. Um, and I've been very, very focused on that. I've been very, very focused on the entrepreneurs and my as my customers, not the LPs. Uh, the LPs to me are free riders, you know? They get, well, not free riders, you know, because they pay for the ride, but they're riders. They're, they're, you know, they're taking a ride with me and I'm doing them a favor in my, in my, in my, the way I see it. Uh, they're not my customers. My customers, the people I really need to keep happy on entrepreneurs. And I aspire to have, the equivalent of a net promoter score of 100. I want every founder that I backed, whether or not it was a success, by the way, to recommend me to their friends without any hesitation and any qualifications. And this is how I test myself. So uh, why? Well, I, 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 this is how I measure myself. So I would rather lose money on an investment, lose the entire investment and have the founders recommend me to their friends than the other way around, make money and have them warn me. Uh, uh, warn, their friends, uh, about me. So, um, um, this is it, just a one, one, one focus, you know, maniacal focus on, um, supporting the entrepreneurs, giving them unconditional love and being the kind of, uh, you know, backer. If I was a founder being the kind of back I would want, um, uh, I want to have myself.
0: Okay. So the ZEV method is about the, uh, performance right so let's talk about a few of them right we we prepare this code and we talk about one uh, over covid one in the big early stages and i like to cover obviously since the insurance uh, the last test one which is this pack on ipo uh, over the sure. show um let's start with your early stage i mean uh, fine, early stage i mean when you started this back uh, uh, in 2009 and can you walk us through you know one of your early home run um, I
1: don't know, uh, whatever. Sure, in 2008, I started in 2008. Uh, one of my, my second investment was a company called Chegg, which is today a $12 billion uh, public company. But actually, let me talk about maybe House, mm. uh, which I did in 2010. Um, in 2010, I met the, uh, the two founders. are By the way, I didn't say it, but most of my investments have something to do with Israeli founders. And uh, this gives me an advantage because this is a tight community and people talk. So, so people know of me, not because they read something about me in the media, but because they heard about me from their friends. So it's a tight community and that it really helps to focus on, um, on something specific and more, um, so other you know, I could have, I, I do not focus on a specific vertical, but it, but I do fo- I do have a focus on uh, you know on Israeli related Israeli entrepreneurs. but anyway, so it's a married couple living uh, Israelis, but living in Palo Alto that moved to the u s ten years earlier, maybe. Uh, when I met them in two thousand and ten, they'd already been living in the u s for at least ten years. And um, and they were still working for other companies. Their husband was working for eBay and that and the, the wife was some kind of financial advisor, and they were raising two kids. But they've been working on House, uh, which, for those who do not know, is uh, you know is an app and a website for um, home um, uh, remodeling. They've been working on it for um, uh, about ten months as a hobby, after hours after they put the kids to bed. And to my shock, despite the fact that no resources, no company, nothing, um, there was a website, really, really beautiful website with. Um, um, something like, uh, I'm trying to remember, but I think a few, maybe a hundred professionals who uploaded their photos and, uh, and a few tens of thousands of unique visitors. And I was like, wow, they did all that after 9 PM between the two of them. And on the spot, I gave them a couple of million to start the business, to incorporate it and really start hiring people. Um, and uh, they grew organically very fast. So Today they, they are the de facto. There's nothing else uh, in the Western world, US and Europe. Uh, nothing comes close. You know, very unique. There's no house number two. And uh, it's still a private company. Last time we raised was actually a while ago, but it was it was four billion dollars. Uh, to this day, I'm the second largest. You know, over time, Sequoia became. I brought Sequoia, and they became larger investors than me. But I'm still the second largest. I'm still on the board of the company for the past since then, um, and hopefully something will be public. So this is an example that became, you know, this is a very, very, very typical example where the main early backer and uh, and you know uh, take part in growing the the company to invent the market or reinvent the market and become the market leader.
0: I said just great. Um, can you share the other example where you call a uh, inside friend? Uh, or classmate to go and run and start a company that is now also a multibillion company.
1: Yes, um, yeah. In two thousand, about the same time actually. In two thousand and ten, I got an idea. I had. I was a chairman of uh, of um, um, advertising tech company, which interestingly eventually failed, <laughs> but um, but for a while it was succeeding, and it had uh, thousands of. Um, publishers that they were paying every month and it was a very, very painful process. And the founder told me, you know, I knew about this, they, uh, you know, told me about this problem and, you know, explained that they don't have the engineering resources to, uh, to automate it. And it's manual, it's full, of, you know, and it's very, very problematic. And they were trying to outsource it, the, 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 the out, and they can't find a solution. Um, if only there was something, he said, if only there was some cloud service that allowed that to happen. And that gave me the idea. So I contacted the good, my best friend from Insad, uh, also Israeli. And he'd sold this previous company a few months ago, uh, earlier, and he was ready to get back to uh, to do something serious. And I, and I suggested that to him, and he knew nothing about payments and nothing about ad tech and nothing about anything close. But he was intrigued. And we kind of together, kind of uh, scoped it and um, decided to give it a go. At the time, we thought it was a very small niche. And, and, but he was satisfied to do something it, like an interesting project with me. We really didn't think it would be something very big. Long story short, he built a great solution. I brought the first customers. I brought the first financial partner, which was Citibank. And long story short, it took us time to build everything, but now we are the leading platform for accounts payable um, automation. Last time we raised was a you know uh, uh, we raised a two billion dollar valuation, but today a more realistic uh, estimate would be around eight billion. Um, I I'm, I still own uh about 40 percent my partner you know my partner and i still control the company and this is a very good and we were saying we we're classmates so this is a great uh i think inside story and uh, yeah so that's uh that's the story that's something that i can see us doing for the next 10 years as well because it just we haven't we feel that we haven't scratched the surface yet
0: and, um let's talk about last year during the covid you have a uh, some hard time with some of your companies. One of them, uh, Trip Action, is um, in the online industry. I think overnight, went out of business. How yeah. do you manage this kind of stuff and how?
1: Yeah, it didn't go out of business. Lost all its business, but yeah, it's yeah, not yeah, go out of yeah, business. Yeah. yeah, so before COVID, probably my hardest deal was indeed this company, Trip TripAction. This was um, uh, a company I seeded in 2015. And based on an idea, there was nothing other than the idea, but I knew the founders, I really thought uh, and the idea was to re, you know reinvent business travel and um, because the feeling was that the business travel solutions that companies use uh, were 15, 20 years old, everyone hated them, like things like Amex or Concur, everyone hated them, and uh, it was we felt that there was an opportunity to do something that puts the, the, not the consumer, the business traveler, the executive or the employee who travels in the middle and really cater to them as opposed to do something that they hate. And uh, we grew extremely fast, never seen anything like it. Uh, We became, I think, a unicorn three or four years later when Andreessen Horowitz backed us, uh, I mean, invest. I I led the seed NDA and was the largest investor uh, at, um, Lightspeed joined me later at the billion-dollar valuation. I think in two thousand maybe eighteen, um, Andreessen uh, invested. Ben Horowitz got on the board. Two thousand nineteen, uh, their growth fund invested at four billion valuation. So this was a very hot uh, fast company. And then COVID happened and overnight, it never happened to me. Any, nothing close ever happened to me. Overnight, 99.5% of the revenues just evaporated, disappeared, nobody was traveling. In our, obviously our revenues are directly linked to business travel. They are linked to the flights and the hotels that people book and 100% of it, 99.5% disappeared. Nobody was traveling in April, 2020 in May and the recovery was very slow. And in, in, in fact, even today, it's very far. It's still very depressed. Consumer travel is recovering faster than business travel. Uh, business travel is still maybe 20, 25% of normal levels today. Um, so uh, but miraculously, maybe or not miraculously, I think that in, in hindsight, uh, of course, we didn't want it to happen. And it was very painful when it happened, and we reacted very quickly. We 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 had a very quick. Uh, uh, we needed to let go of most of our customer support and some of our engineering team back in April. And by the way, we got a lot of grief from the media about it, which in hindsight was stupid. You know, what are you going to do if you're a travel company and COVID hits? What are you going to keep it? You know, all the people. But still, the media at the time, people still didn't understand what was going on, was giving us grief for for moving fast, but. Ironically, I think we are, in hindsight, we're going to look back and feel that it makes us so much stronger because during COVID, uh, the company dramatically increased market share. Um, before COVID, we were good. We were selling to the mid-market and down. Uh, Post-COVID, we're able to nail enter- much bigger enterprise customers. So today we have Netflix and we have Adobe and we have uh, uh, Qualcomm, and we have Heineken, Beer, and we have many others uh, that have, we have very large travel budgets. Even if they don't travel today or travel at a reduced level, they will go back to travel. And um, we also came out with a very successful expense management pro- pro- product. So we have a, a second product that is taking off, and we, we believe we're going to dominate that market as well. Uh, I can tell that today we are valued at Significantly higher than the four billion. I well, I cannot disclose it, but we're hired, we valued at, at, at significantly higher than the four billion that we were pre-COVID. And I think just like Amazon in 2000, when it got um, hammered in terms of valuation in the short term, and and and, and but in the long term, uh, really solidified it. it. Actually, Audible as well. If remember, men uh, it predates our investment, but um, but it almost didn't survive the bust of uh, 2000. But when it came back, uh, basically, there was audit was totally dominant and totally controlled to this day, totally dominates The market, I think the same is happening uh, with trip actions. So uh, that it would make us stronger, not weaker. So, but it was quite an experience, quite a roller coaster, and quite a test, by the way, to the management, because the biggest risk in those situations. The biggest risk was not to run out of money because we actually were lucky that when things happened, we had a lot of money in the bank when uh, when March, uh, in March uh, 2020. The biggest risk was flight of talent because, and by the way, the risk was bigger, was not that big in uh, March and April because nobody was hiring. But come June, all the cloud companies were recovering and Zoom and um you know who else? All these companies were targeting us like crazy. They were targeting engineers, and they were targeting our sales uh, and marketing people because it's you know it's the same uh, same skill. And uh, the fact that and it's not that we didn't lose any engineers, and it, it's not that we didn't lose any uh, salespeople, but the fact that the leadership we had some of the best people um, in the Silicon Valley, so everyone was going after our people. And the fact that we were able to keep most of them, and in fact, we're able to keep pretty much all the executive team, I think is a testament to the strength of the founders and the leadership of the CEO. I think it's the ultimate test. And the company could, that could have just disintegrated because we would just lose all the talent and uh, nothing would, st- would, and then we wouldn't be able to raise money, et cetera. And, and that was the ultimate le- uh, test of leadership. And I'm so happy that the uh, uh, you know, the found the CEO rose to the occasion. And I think there's going to be a book written about this perseverance and uh, endurance. I, I really think it's an amazing, amazing, amazing story.
0: Looking forward to the book. So, uh, okay, my, my last question is uh, more towards to insurance. You are investors behind uh, Next and Hippo, both yeah. unicorn. Uh, Hippo went for a SPAC uh, over the summer, which was the latest one uh, that was a company that uh, went yeah. public. Can you uh, tell us more, you know, the background rationale, you know, the story behind those two companies? Sure. And after that, I'm done and I will open uh, the Q&A session.
1: Sure. Sure. By the way, after two, um, my role is much bigger. Next, next, I led the seed round. I'm on the board. I'm much more significant. Hippo, I had mean, known the founders. I could have led the seed. I made a mistake and didn't. And then I could have done the A. I made a mistake and didn't. And only much later, I realized that they broke through and I uh, managed to convince the founder to let me invest a bit, you know, it's much smaller, not on the board and all that. And I cannot claim any credit for their success because it's not, it succeeded without, you know, without me playing any role. Uh, having said that, uh, uh, so I'm, so I'm a small investor. I'm not on the board in the case of HIPPO, but let's talk about HIPPO because I think there is a lesson, uh, from, uh, from the, uh, there is a lesson from this, from the, uh, from the last few months. Um for those who don't know, uh Hippo is a fast growing um home insurance company and um about a year ago, maybe 10 months ago, the company decided to go public. They really uh they really looked great and they could have gone either way uh either traditional IPO or SPAC and at the time they decided the SPAC uh, to go because the thought was that it's going to be faster it's going to be more certain and we're going to get a great sponsor because we will have whoever pick we could have chosen anyone um, so we decided or the, the company decided again I'm not on the board but it's it's not like I had a different opinion by the way so it's I'm not saying that I knew better you know the company decided but you know I uh it's not that I uh it's only in hindsight that it was um, uh, that was clear to us that it was a mistake. But the company that so I, sh- I will I, I will say we. Although again, we decided to go uh, public through uh, a merger with a SPAC. We really had our choice. We had the best SPACs. So it was super oversubscribed. <coughs> we decided to go with um, a well a, a very well respected uh, uh, sponsor. Reed, uh, it's called Reinvent. Reid Hoffman from LinkedIn and and Mark Pinkus. And uh, we did this five billion pre-money, six billion post-money. Um, um, the, the pipe was very oversubscribed, which, by the way, was not the highest offer that we got. The pipe was oversubscribed. Everything looked good. Uh, and remember, this is the period where the SPACs peaked. This uh, crazy phenomenon of SPACs peaked, and uh, that was and, and that was in Q1. And then there was a process after the pipe. Is signed, but between it, the merger is complete and the thing starts to trade. Normally, it should take three or four months. In this case, it took six or seven months because the SEC there was some more issue, not specific to HIPAA, but in general. Um, um, and it started trading about a month ago. And as soon as it started trading, it started plummet. It, it started plummeting and. Uh, it, it, it lost, like within weeks, it, it lost 60% of the value. Now it's back to only losing 40% of the value. So it went from $10 to under four. Now it's five and something. Um, and obviously this is, you know, it is a challenge. By the way, it's the same challenge as before. I'm not worried about the business. I'm not worried about the cash. The company has tons of cash. I'm not worried about the business. The, the real risk is losing the executives. And I feel very confident because I trust the management there. But, but still, despite the fact that I believe that they'll recover, it's, in hindsight, we wouldn't have done that. And here are my conclusions. First, in hindsight, I think it was just too early for HIPAA to be uh, public. By the way, what, what happened, I should explain, what happened between January and started trading, two things, I think. First, the entire sector, the entire sure tech went down by about 50%. So all the comps went down by 50%. The second thing that happened that was more specific to HIPPO, their loss ratio was just terrible in the first half of the year. And the reason it was so terrible is because they were very, they are concentrated in Texas. And Texas had this natural, you know, once in whatever century uh, disaster, and they just got slammed with claims. So uh, these are the two reasons why they got uh, hammered so much. Um. And the fact that uh, I think specs just were very hot in Q1, but by now, you know, they have bad reputation. So there are also technical reasons, but all these things combined. So, what are the lessons? What are the key takeaways, I think? First of all, in hindsight, I think Hippo was just a little bit too you know, premature to go public at all, either way. And I think it would, be, it would have been better just to do another uh, growth round. And postpone until they're less concentrated in one state and more. It's just more mature business. So, first of all, I think they were just too too much, you know, not mature enough to go public. But the other lesson is that I really think I'm not gonna make a big statement. I really don't think there is a good having learned everything that I learned about SPACs, and by the way, not just from the hippo experience, but also I myself I have a couple of friends with SPACs, and I'm on board, I'm on the board, of, I'm on the board of one SPAC just as a favor to a friend. I really think there's no reason for any good company to do a spec, you know, ever. So the only reason is like special circumstances that uh, there's some problem or some reason why they cannot go traditionally. Otherwise, either you can go traditionally or just do a growth round. Don't take this shortcut. I just think it's a mistake, you know, and I'm, I'm, I want to keep it short. so I don't want to go into more, too much details and, unless there are questions about it, but this is the conclusion that I really uh, come to, and I think SPACs are going to. I think it was a very unnatural inflation of SPACs, and I think it's going to go back to what it was before, which is some exotic instrument used in some very rare, you know, unusual circumstances, typically for second-tier companies. Uh, I just don't think it's a viable alternative for most companies that go public.
0: Then go back to to next because you you have a more active rule right they raise yeah uh,
1: yeah next are much more active yeah yeah and they
0: raise uh, I think two fifty million at four billion valuation uh, yeah, <clears throat> what, yeah. Ha- what have you done for them and what what's uh...
1: yeah so next it's a good example because next uh, was at least as ready to go public as Hippo but the CEO just made a, a different decision he said I don't want to be public. Why would I want to be private? Either way, not spec or no spec doesn't matter. I want to stay private longer so that I feel more mature. And I think in this case he made the right choice. Again, I don't want to sound like I'm criticizing the CEO of Hippo because I think he's great, and I you know, and I didn't push back back then, and uh, so it's only twenty twenty hindsight is old twenty twenty. So I'm not trying to. Uh, but in this case, I think it was a mistake. you know, I think it's, I think he thinks it was a mistake. You know, so. Um, Going back to next, yeah, next, you know, I, I, I led the seed round and, you know, I've been a, uh, uh, a board ever since and participated in some of the other rounds and helped where I could. Uh, I can't, you know, I, I can't say that there's some very, I can not now think of a specific contribution. other than that. Like, I think next would have been just fine <laughs> without me as well. I don't think that I, did something, uh, uh special, uh, in the case of next, I think it's great, great, great management team, great leadership. And I think that what they're building is extremely interesting. Speaking of insurance, because unlike other areas, I don't think this is a commodity, small business insurance. I think it's extremely, extremely complicated. It's much more complicated, for example, from a home insurance product. <coughs> So from a product standpoint, it's extremely difficult because you have to, you have to support up in an optimal way hundreds of, diff, of classes of business. Because it's not the same insurance for a photographer as it is for, for a plumber, as it is for an electrician, as it is for uh, a coffee shop or a lawyer. And you have to support about 10 different lines of business, meaning... Um, product liability, general liability, commercial auto, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And you obviously have to do it per state. So think of this matrix, 300 times 10 times 50, you know, it's like in each each you need to be licensed. So uh, just the complexity of the insurance operation is crazy high. And I think that next insurance has the opportunity to really dominate small business insurance in ways that I don't think it's possible for home insurance. I think in home insurance, there are going to be several players because I think it's more of a... Uh, the barriers are, are lower than it is in, in small business insurance.
0: OK, OK, thank you. Um, does anyone... Um, I think we cannot chat in the in this Zoom. So anyone have a question? Can you just uh, you know uh, introduce yourself and ask the question? Uh, uh, I guess, Eyal, you have a. Yeah, okay.
1: Yes. Hi. Uh, uh, hi, Owen. Uh, I, I'm Eyal. I'm a fundraising. Uh, Let me guess partner. you're Israeli, right? Good guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm actually living in France, uh, obviously, and um, I'm a
2: managing partner at a fundraising advisory firm for startups Series A, Series B. Uh, the question.
1: Uh, I understand that, that part of your investments are in people that you know. My question is more for the people that you don't know. Uh, what would be your decision uh, process? What are the things that makes you tick and saying, okay, yeah, this is the one? Yeah, first of all, my decision process is is extremely fast. Either I invest or I don't, it's typically 24 hours, 48 hours. If it's I, you know, I don't do lengthy diligence. If I have to do more than one. Make more one, more than one phone call or two phone calls. I just don't do it because it's not obvious Basically, either I know the people and I feel that there are proven, like the next insurance founders who had sold the four hundred company for four hundred million dollars before, or the trip actions people who had sold the company before, or I see early signs of traction, of indications that there's product market fit. For example, I just gave you the example earlier of house where it was very early through revenue, but I could already look at the analytics, I could look at the engagement metrics and the growth metrics and et cetera, et cetera, and uh, didn't realize that there's something there that is stumbled upon uh, uh, something. Every single one of my investments pretty much falls into one bucket or the other, either somewhat proven business or somewhat proven product market fit with founders that I like, but they don't have to be proven or uh, proven founders and a business idea that I like, but doesn't have to be proven. But now insisting on at least one of them must be at least, what, at least somewhat proven dramatically reduces the risk. That's why my hit rate is extremely high. Just, there's un, very uncharacteristic in the market. What, this means that if there is a very promising but unproven founder with a very promising but unproven idea, I'm not going to do it, and I may miss. I may miss it. Maybe I'm going to catch it later. Maybe not. But uh, but basically, that's the answer. You know, for me, if the founders are first timers, uh, I would need to see. I would need to love the the, the 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 opportunity, obviously, but I would also need to see some proof of product market. Early indications of product market fit. I'm not going to do it beforehand. Okay. Thank okay,
0: thanks. Any other questions
1: in, uh, uh,
0: in the team? No? Uh, so, uh, let me ask you the last question. So, if uh, you are an LP, there's no chance to invest because you uh, don't take money from LPs, it's better than the one that you know. If we want to co invest with you, there's any chance uh, uh, at all. And if uh, you do, you invest outside the U.S. with non-Israeli uh, people that you you don't you don't know. <laughs> and I think François has a has a question. Sorry, after me. So uh, no, you are meet- uh, you're, you're on mute. You're uh, mute, François.
2: Excuse me, because I had a baby crying earlier. So that's why I'm in the baby room. Uh, thank you for uh, for allowing me, Al-Rubin and Lorraine. Um, I'm an entrepreneur from Paris. I currently work in the fashion industry after some uh, experience in M&A, banking in London. And I'm tempted by InsurTech. Very candid question on my side. What would you give as an advice to someone who would like to start the next um, next insurance in France, for example? We don't have such anything close. And where would you start, please?
1: Yeah. Um. I'm trying to think. Um, Very large. First, it's a complex uh, area. You know, I would say, and it requires a lot of funding, I learned. Both Hippo and uh, Next really needed to raise a lot of money, and there's there's no way to do it without raising a lot of money. Obviously, you don't have to raise everything in the beginning. You can build it. uh, uh, You can prove things and build it along the way. I think that generally speaking, I find that sometimes it's easier to disrupt the space from the outside because people within the space are too locked in the way they, uh... so it's okay to start something naively without, uh, uh, and from that perspective, ignorance is bliss, you know, because like if you knew from day one all the uh, hurdles and obstacles, you probably would not have started. However, I do think that fairly early on, you want to complement your original out of the box, outside the industry thinking with real deep knowledge of the industry. Um, Because otherwise, you'll get in trouble. So, for example, next insurance, one of our critical hires early on was um, the, uh, you know, someone. Uh, a woman who heads our insurance operations. And we have other people that we hired that from the industry who bring this. Um, um, I do think that, uh, um, you know, one idea which is true, not just for tech but it's generally true. Um, one advantage one can have in Europe is to look at the U.S., and basically get ideas from the U.S. and replicate it in Europe before the U.S. companies um, have enough resources and mind share to focus on Europe. And usually there is a long gap. For example, HIPPO, not HIPPO, both, but uh, Next uh, started, I think, in early 2016. So it's five and a half years. And we still don't have plans to go to Europe. OK, so there is there is a gap uh, of in the case, in this case, at least five and a half years. But I I can also tell you that more because we're not going to go to Europe tomorrow morning where there's this window of opportunity. Now, that is true, um, you know, basically for any uh, uh, any business. If you can see a good idea like uh, whatever, the Uber idea or the Airbnb idea or some innovation that's happening in the U.S. and you can replicate before the U.S. company uh, has, you know, focuses on Europe, but then you have something. And then either you have enough critical mass to withstand the Americans when they do come or you get acquired by them um, uh, or not. In the case of house, we're able to start in Europe before anyone. Uh, manage to do anything similar. But anyway, so I think there is an opportunity. I think uh, the fact that you can point to successful companies in the US should help you with fundraising. Uh, You can also, it's a shortcut also because you can study them and see how they started. You typically want to start with one, uh, obviously with one product, you cannot Start with everything. Uh, uh, maybe you start with a more simple, with a simpler model. And they, by the way, the idea in the case of Next, the idea is that you have uh, before Next, everything was done through agents, um, and basically, Next basically took it online and started selling small business insurance directly on you know online, uh, directly targeting the plumbers or the electricians or the photographers, what have you. But, um, so yeah, that would be my, uh, my advice. i I'm, I'm, I know I'm advising against, maybe against myself because maybe we should hope that nobody does anything in Europe uh, until we have the time to focus on it. But you asked, so I'm giving you the honest answer.
2: <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate. And then would you recommend to look for money in America or like stick to the French criteria where it's complicated to raise a- more than a million on, on a, just on an ID, you know.
1: Honestly, I I think you want to raise where you can, um, because first and foremost, it's money. I mean, it, it, you know, especially in the beginning, as long as it's the money does no harm. Okay, obviously you don't want to raise. It's like marriage, so you don't want to marry uh, someone who uh, is going to make your life miserable. Plus, it's actually worse than marriage because in the case of marriage, you can get a divorce. It's much more difficult and. Uh, uh, with investors but uh, as long true. as the money you don't think is going to do you any harm I would take it whether it's French or English or German or American uh, at some point when you can choose I would say go for the bigger pools go for people who see the big picture but go for people who can write larger checks etc but you know and in the beginning, and, and a lot of it will depend on people that who know you, uh, François. So uh, because in the beginning, when it's just an idea, it's hard for someone to just that. that you know, there are many ideas. So um, so it really helps someone who trusts you, knows you, and at least to get started. Once you can show some signs of some metrics, some signs of success, some customers. Test- then you can uh, go get introductions, get into uh, 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 get get in front of VCs, and uh, whether they're in the US or in Europe. By the way, there are you know the good VCs in Europe as well. Um, so there is less money, but there is money in Europe. As well.
0: Okay, so thank you, François. Uh, in France, you have uh, a surly, which is a copy of Next. If
2: you want. Yeah. Um,
1: um, okay, I, uh, I, I, I didn't even know
2: that. Um, so there's a bunch of them. They all start, but they're very very tiny versus the potential of the market, I guess. Fair so
0: there's still an talk. opportunity. Yeah. So uh, last question uh, before we close. I mean, uh, when you pick up a company, and there was a, my question before, it's a it's already a, a very uh, a signal, right? Because it's going to be a, a unicorn or a company that pick up. So uh, can you share a bit where is your next pick and who you call for that? Uh, how 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 to get a call from from you for co investment?
1: so to be honest, so first of all i never know when where, where my next investment cuz i'm not thesis based i'm opportunity based i react to opportunities many times it's it's serendipity it's someone got someone i know or someone who is very close to someone who's close to me um and i just see the idea and i said wow this is great like um like recently i invested in a company that i would never i could never have thought I imagined that I wouldn't. day before I met them, I could never imagine that I would witness something like that. And when I started, I said, "Wow!" And it's uh, it's actually software and technology, AI software that allows uh, the to see underground from the air. And it was developed by the Israeli military for uh, 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 military purposes to uh, identify from the air the tunnels uh, uh, of the Hamas. Uh, and the people who developed it for the IDF are now now uh, want to rebuild it and repurpose the technology for construction, um, a s- a virtual drilling for construction. Um, I would never have thought about something like that. But when I started, say, "Wow, this could totally uh, huge market for that." This is the best team in the world to do it. Um, so I never know. But the but the point is that I never know in advance. Uh, what was the second part of the? Uh, and who you
0: call when you make an investment? You don't need to call. Oh, anyone.
1: I, but, typically <laughs> no one because I, you know, I have a lot. Typically, the truth is that typically, I'm not the best share in the world. This is, you know, I, you know, when I see something, I just want to go all in. I want to do as much as uh, with myself, and I have a lot of funds uh, at my disposal. So, I typically do not need anyone else. And if I do something with someone, it's only for competitive reasons. In in other words, um. Uh, the company decided that it's going to uh, uh, share the deal between uh, two uh, and then the share between two people who competed for the deal. Maybe there were five, the company chose two. and uh, So the truth is that typically when I share deals, it's uh, it's typically not because I called someone and invited them to do with me, but now, uh, that, yeah, uh, if I call someone, it would only be an individual who is writing a very small check and I, I think can help the company. Or later stages where, the, you know, maybe the company is doing a $100 million round and then maybe I want to bring also someone else. But in the Series C, the A, even BA typically do not. I just want to be very transparent, man. And, you know, this is uh, and so far, at least I never invested in Europe. Um, and uh, only in Israel and the U.S., mainly in the U.S., but uh, the U.S. and Israel. Um, Again, I'm not particularly looking. I mean, if there's some circumstances where I thought that I had an edge, um, maybe through a relationship, maybe I'm not ruling anything out. But so far, I never have uh, uh, invested in, uh, in any European company.
0: No, well, thank you, thank you. Uh, it has been a great pleasure to have you uh, for the hour, and uh, we learned about a bit more about the Zev method. Uh, again, uh, you know, I met you uh, 20 years ago, and uh, I'll probably follow your adventure in the next twenty years. So, no, no, congrats, and um, hopefully everybody uh, enjoy this moment. Um, thank you. Yeah,
1: thank uh, you very
0: much. See you soon, and um, <laughs> see you at the uh, see uh, I'm looking forward to read on TechCrunch your next uh, your next week.
1: <laughs> I never talked to TechCrunch, but uh, okay.
0: <laughs> but they follow
1: Maybe. you. They follow you. <laughs> All right. So, Thank you.
0: Bye-bye.
2: Thank you. Bye. Thank you.